Okay, great. So this is um, this is the fourth class out of six in the Transforming the Analytical Mind series. And I wanted to start with, um, uh, as usual, a uh, chance to talk a little bit about uh, what we what was suggested for from last week or any um, remaining ideas you have about last week's material. But in particular, the uh, suggestions for practice were to pay attention to the attitude with which you're being mindful and check whether it's inclusive and warm and um, has these qualities where it's not kind of, you know, uh, biased a little bit with uh, wanting or not wanting, which we can let creep into our mindfulness sometimes. Um, and then also to consider uh, reading a sutta sometime uh, right before bed, see how that affects the mind. So I'm curious if anyone has any comments on that. Yeah, Roman. Um, I really like the practice of reading a sutta before bed uh -huh. um, because it was calming and that seemed to go hand in hand with going to bed. But also because after a couple of times, I sort of found myself finding it also good practice for mindful of speech and I would like read this to kind of quietly out loud and that was helpful for me especially because sort of something that you mentioned before that when you first start being mindful of speech it's almost difficult to speak and yeah. it's there's just a lot of nerves in the mouth area that I wasn't fully aware of and it's, it's almost like I'm really like sensitive there there's like just an overload of information for the brain in a way but that was really curious to watch and reading a sutta was like a really nice way to practice that. Hmm. That's great. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that reading a sutta can be a way into mindfulness of speaking. That's fantastic, but it makes perfect sense to me. And uh, it's a little bit like the way, I don't know if any of you have done walking meditation, like during a day long or during a retreat. And sometimes you're so mindful of the walking, um, that you, you start paying too much attention to it and you you trip or something you know it's like you know how to walk you've never you would never trip just walking but somehow when all the focus of attention is there we can let our conscious mind get in the way so i love that i think that's great roman and also um you're right that it's a little calming to do that right before bed any other comments Kim, this is Sujan, and I, I, I kind of second Roman's thing. Um, I used to always, um, kind of in my routine, try to read before bedtime. But after, I think last week, I wanted to get a bit more um, steady with my books, as in, you know, um, like follow follow them through from beginning to end. So I kind of uh, bookend, bookended my days. Uh, so I read something in the morning. And then I read something at night and it was great for me because I kept thinking about it during the day. And um, so my kids are home now and it's summer. And it was interesting. I read a, a sutta and um, so, something happened in the day where it made perfect sense to me. Like whatever the sutta was trying to teach me was there, there was a lesson for me in the day. Um, so that kind of made me want to read one in the morning and the night too. And then, um, so I, so my routine kind of ended up becoming, I, so I do the Anguttara Nikha in the morning 
I do the Dhammapada at night and, and that worked for me. Okay, great. Yeah, it's interesting how just placing our mind in that zone, then we start noticing things that are resonant with that throughout the day. I think that's great. Thank you. And yeah, why not? Morning and evening. Bookend. I like that. Okay. Well, I see a few more people have joined, so that's great. Welcome to everybody. Uh, we were just reviewing from uh, anything left over from last week. Um, you may recall, or, or if you weren't here, last week we talked about um, various nourishments of the path of practice that will mature the analytical mind. So that is particular the attitude with which we are mindful and the possibility of having a direct experience of um, the Buddhist texts of um, taking in those words kind of into our body. So when we cultivate all of this, then certain Dharma qualities start to emerge that are related to wisdom. And today's session is on a couple of those. Um, one is clear comprehension and the other is Dharma investigation. And there will be others that we'll talk about in the future sessions also. Um, and these are, of course, uh, rather large topics, and so we won't be able to cover them in total detail, but I think it'll be enough of an overview that you can get a flavor of what that quality is, and um, I'll be offering some possibilities for starting to notice it in your own practice, in your own life. Um, okay, so we have understood um, that discursive thought, which tends to be first of all, self-focused and also just kind of feed on itself and go on and on um, is not very useful. That much um, is clear from our own experience. Um, but I want to differentiate some, some qualities that are present in just regular surface level thought that we do throughout the day so that we can see actually what is useful and what isn't. So the part where we get obsessed with figuring things out and all of that, that part isn't useful. But um, the ability to separate and distinguish, which is actually a normal quality of everyday thought, that is useful. So I want to start distinguishing, um, pulling out uh, a function of the mind, which is the ability to clearly separate out and identify what is what. Uh, which we do all the time. You know, if you go to the to the store, you have to be able to figure out which aisle what you're looking for is on. So you read the signs and you and you filter out. That's not it. That's not it. Oh, there. That sign says that says what I'm looking for. That's the aisle I need to go into. That's a very normal analytical function of mind is to 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 sort through and figure out which is the one that you want. So that is actually important. And we've seen that it has a function on the path already in terms of seeing that that is what we use to distinguish wholesome from unwholesome. And it is a mode of thinking, um, but it's also, of course, has a, it can be informed by the body. We talked about how sometimes we can feel in our body when we're moving towards something that's unwholesome or towards something that's wholesome. And it becomes um, easier for us to figure out what, what to do. So, um, and, and if we can't do that, if we can't distinguish uh, what, what direction to go in and what direction not to go in, we can't walk the path. 
So this, um, this distinguishing function of mind, even this called, could be called the discriminating function of mind, is actually useful when it's well-directed. And so the, um, the part of mindfulness practice that deals with that function of mind is called clear comprehension. And that's what we're gonna start talking about today. So um, clear comprehension is one of these wisdom dharma qualities that starts to emerge from practice. It starts to become clearer what that function of mind is. You've probably had it for a while, but once you realize that it's useful and start directing it in helpful ways, like, like using it in your ethical conduct um, and in your meditation, then it starts to become, it starts to be kind of nourished and, and fed and it will start to grow and deepen and you'll also see more clearly what it is. Um, so this word in Pali is sampajanya, and it is defined as acting in a clearly conscious way, which always sounds a little circular to me since the translation is also clear comprehension. Um, it's also sometimes translated as full awareness. Uh, we act with full awareness when doing something. And the commentaries list um, four different aspects of clear comprehension, which I'll just put up on the screen for you. Um, there. So we have clear comprehension of the purpose or the benefit of a planned action. We have clear comprehension of the suitability of that action, of the uh, domain or territory, um, and this is defined as the four establishments of mindfulness. So the domain of clear comprehension is the four foundations of body, feeling, uh, mind, and um, mental, uh, mental qualities. And then the fourth is the clear comprehension of non-delusion, or also called reality. <laughs> I like that. Um, so this is discernment of things in their true nature, how they actually are free from delusion. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that one since it's maybe not as obvious when you first just hear the words. So the first two of these, um, of purpose and of suitability, these are engaged uh, before we do an action. So it's something that we can reflect on in advance. Um, you know, it's, it's before we act. Actually, it's also before we speak and even uh, before we think. If we're quick enough with our mindfulness, we will see that there can be there can be clear comprehension even before we bring a thought to mind. Um, so we want to check these. You know, you know if there is um, if there's no benefit, then we shouldn't do it for sure. And if there is a benefit, we can consider it. But we might also want to consider whether it's actually suitable to do or say that at that time. Just as a simple example. Um, it's normally very beneficial to uh, hug people at funerals, but during this time of pandemic, it might not be suitable, depending on the circumstances. So we have to use our judgment sometimes about those things. And there are all sorts of other cases where you know, there's plenty of good things I could do at this moment, but only some fraction of them kind of fit the context of what's going on. Um, but luckily, there's usually quite a few that do fit the context, so that's fine. Um, the third and fourth qualities of the domain and of non-delusion, those are engaged um, 
during you know during the action they're engaged while we're actually doing it so they're um in fact the suttas say that one acts clearly comprehending uh going forward and returning um speaking and being silent here i'll just read the section make a slide for this one so it's in the section on the body um, and it says a practitioner is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away when flexing and extending the limbs when wearing the robes and carrying the bowl okay that's for monastics but we can think of our equivalents uh, when eating drinking consuming food and tasting when defecating and urinating when walking standing sitting falling asleep waking up talking and keeping silent so that doesn't leave very much that we're not supposed to be mindful of <laughs> so it's um and it's not meant to be overwhelming it's just supposed to encourage uh realizing that we actually can be aware of all kinds of actions. Uh, sometimes people um, don't realize that they can be mindful while speaking, and it's not easy to do. As we, as we heard earlier, it might take some practice to touch into what, what that's like, um, but it becomes uh, useful and also a little humbling when we realize that how much of our day we're, we're really not that mindful sometimes, and you know we'll arrive somewhere and realize that the whole drive we don't remember anything about it but somehow we got there presumably obeying traffic laws um i sometimes use just as a personal example i sometimes use clear comprehension at the grocery store so um for example i uh, it's easy at the grocery store for it to just become kind of a routine exercise of doing it the way that we always do it although i guess these days we can't do it quite the way we always do it uh, we all have our masks on but nonetheless, it can be just, you know, I've got my list, I'm gonna go and get what's on my list. Or maybe you're more the kind of person who gets sucked into buying what you don't need to buy and you, know, you walk up and down the aisles and you suddenly realize, oh, I need some of that, I need some of that. But whatever it is, it's a habitual kind of response. It can also um, easily be efficient, you know, just gotta get this done, have to go through the grocery store. And we don't think much about for example, the other people that are in the store. So it's, um, you know, it's nice to make the grocery store into more of a conscious experience and, you know, maybe even intending to uh, be kind to the other people to these days we can be kind by uh, moving around them in a conscious way, maybe even being uh, helpful or, or friendly in some way. Certain, these days I've been thanking the grocery store cashiers for their difficult work and you know continuing to do it and i think that's just another way to bring some clear comprehension into what we're doing it's suitable it's beneficial in that moment so this is actually a very everyday practice um, clear comprehension it's not some subtle on the cushion thing although of course you can do it there too so i encourage um, you know paying some attention to these activities throughout the day and then the, the fourth aspect of clear comprehension is a little bit more subtle. Clear comprehension of reality or seeing things as they are. How are they? Often they are changing. And so 
this has a lot to do with noticing impermanence or change or inconstancy. It's not that things are always going away and you know becoming gone, but they are changing or shifting or um, yeah, not not remaining the same. So it's important that it to kind of bring in noticing impermanence because we have such a tendency to get fixated on things and to believe that they're permanent when they're when they're really not and then we're surprised when they when they change um, you know we may go and we've been shopping and we come and blindly routinely get into our car turn the key it doesn't start <laughs> that can happen and so we have a, a moment to remember oh this is the reality is that this is inconstant it's unreliable in this moment it doesn't always do what I expect it to. So that's maybe a better response than letting out a string of curse words, which might also be a habitual response to the car not starting. So um, these are little ways, again, very mundane in, in daily life, that we can bring in some real wisdom. You know, the wisdom of impermanence goes quite deep. And if we can start conditioning ourselves to see it you know, just throughout the day, uh, it really helps support our practice. So um, clear comprehension, you know, just using these simple four ideas about how we can be aware of our everyday activities is a somewhat different way of knowing than our usual way of knowing. And it's not like we don't know things. We go, we know a lot about our life and we know how to do it and we go through our day. Maybe we've been going through our days for decades before we thought about mindfulness practice, for instance. And now that we bring in some of these pretty simple ideas, uh, we're seeing that we're, uh, we're touching into a way of knowing that is still um, quite every day, and yet it's a little bit different in that uh, we couldn't quite put a formula to it. Uh, it's something that we have to know in the moment that we're extending our arm or flexing our arm, and it's something that we can't quite be sure is the same for everyone else. You know, the feeling for me of flexing, of extending my arm is kind of unique to me. And it depends also on the fact that I'm wearing a shirt that's like this. If I had a tight shirt on, it would be a different feeling in my shoulder as I extended it. And I'm getting, kind of getting into details, but um, it's a very uh, first person kind of experience, kind of knowing, not really an abstract, oh, now I'm doing this, now I'm doing that, something that somebody else could also observe about us. Clear comprehension includes an internal sense of what we're doing. It includes knowing our purpose, our motivation, um, see, feeling the changing sensations as it happens. So this is uh, information that is personal, deeply personal. So other people couldn't know exactly that, and yet not really connected with our personal history, our personal story, our complicated psychology, uh, these kinds of things. Um, so it's a very simple, clear, clean kind of knowing that is nonetheless um, quite deep, quite personal, quite um, intimate, even experiential. Does that make sense? It's, yeah. So it's, um, it's an aspect of wisdom, actually, that's available in everyday life. And we're slowly weaning off, weaning our mind off of just knowing things kind of abstractly and routinely and being sure about everything that's going on into something that maybe even has a little bit of a question is it in it how is it to be speaking at this moment uh clearly comprehending does it seem to be working you know this discernment of is it going in a good direction or not 
Um, so we can just be sure in this moment about what's happening, um, and not make it so abstract. Are there any questions on, um, on clear comprehension? Risa. Um, Sati something, Jana. The Buddha, I think, always talks about combining the two completely. And so I've practiced the first two parts of Sampanjana, purpose and suitability in daily life, you know, mm -hmm. intention, yeah. action. But the other two are really, I, I think I, I must have, what I understood is that those are to be used solely in meditation. Um. Those ones are Aside easier. Aside from Nikatera, the heart uh -huh. of Buddha, that's where I got that. Yeah, the, um, the teachings on clear comprehension are completely commentarial. They don't come from the Pali Canon. Um, so we don't really get clear guidance within, say, the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, which, is, uh, which includes Satisampajanya as much of, um, of it. However, I think... Um, we can say that that um, clear comprehension of, of actions that occurs in the body section, the one that I read, um, that one does include some aspects of, you know, of seeing reality and seeing, yeah. It does. I mean, in that, yeah, I understand that. That's definitely, yeah. but I just, they. You've heard it presented as being only in meditation. Yeah. Utilize it primarily in meditation. However, yeah. of course, I bring uh, anatta and anicca into daily life. Yeah. Thanks. So whether we call that the same as satisampajanya, maybe a, a little bit of a um, uh, semantic kind of issue as to what you call that kind of practice in everyday life. Um, in fact, the next thing we were going to do was a meditation um, on the clear comprehension of reality. So it's certainly also a cushion practice, this fourth one. And that's, in fact, where I wanted to direct us next. When we, as soon as I'm sure we don't have more questions, any other questions or comments on this? Thank you for bringing that up. Okay, cool. So... Um, Let's go ahead and, and do a guided meditation. So please take a posture that is upright and also relaxed or sitting in your usual meditation seat. If you're comfortable doing so, you can close your eyes. Maybe taking a couple of long, slow, deep breaths. And on the out breath, letting the body relax. Sensing the place where you're sitting your seat against the chair or the cushion, and your legs or feet against the floor. So feeling the stability.
Letting go into the support of what you're sitting on. And then beginning to soften, softening the muscles of the face, with the forehead and around the eyes and the jaw. Softening the eyes and the eye sockets. down into the shoulders, letting the shoulder blades slide down the back. The arms and the hands. Softening into the chest area, maybe feeling the rib cage, including the back and the sides. Releasing the diaphragm. And down into the belly. Letting that soften to whatever degree it can. The hip joints and down into the legs. Softening the thighs and knee joints. all the way down into the lower legs and even the feet. And as the body is invited into ease, we can gently turn the attention to the sensations of breathing. 
simple elemental sensations. Touch of the air on the nostrils or the upper lip. Maybe coolness on the in-breath. Feeling of expansion in the throat or the chest. Then the ending of the in-breath. Shifting to the out-breath. Different sensations, relaxation, maybe warmth. Just allowing the mind to to rest with the simple sensations of breathing. Spending a little time settling the mind, focusing on calm, tranquility. any sense of ease in the body or mind.
And as we continue to sit with the simple physical sensations of the breath, we can turn toward the changing nature of these simple sensations. They're actually never the same, even for a moment. Tuning into the arising of each new sensation. We may notice the beginning of the in-breath, that first little burst of energy as it comes in. And then some sense of changing flow as the chest expands. And then we may notice the beginning of the out breath. Some change as the air flows out. And as we continue with mindfulness, we may start to notice that there are more beginnings. There's the beginning of the beginning of the in-breath, and then there's the beginning of the middle of the in-breath, where it's a little bit different. And then there's the ending of the in-breath before the beginning of the beginning of the out-breath. Just resting in the continual newness of the flow of the breath.
And from time to time, it's possible to scan back through the body. Just notice if any tension may have built up somewhere. Check and see if we can soften. And open again to the changing sensations of the breath. with the breath and with all of experience, it's changing.
Okay, good. So this is something that, if it makes sense, you can do it from time to time in your meditation is to um, bring in this conscious awareness of, of the change. Uh, you can, I was pointing toward beginnings, but you can also notice endings if you want. It's just a little harder sometimes. We're more attuned to noticing beginnings. But I wanted to um, move on now to Dharma investigation, which is um, the second of the qualities that we're going to look at tonight. And this one um, is, uh, we're going to get to do a little experiential exercise to, uh, to learn about it. So the Pali word that I'm uh, talking about here in terms of Dharma investigation is uh, Dhamma Vichaya. And it's, um, it's also the second factor of awakening out of the seven factors of awakening. So it's an important quality. Um, this word Dhamma in Dhamma Vichaya is a word that has a lot of different translations and many different aspects. And so in this case, um, it's usually said to refer to a uh, phenomena. So Dhamma meaning just experience or phenomena in general. So things that happen are called Dhammas. Um, and then uh, Vichaya is just a verb that's related to um, verbs for examining or investigating. So it literally means investigation of phenomena or investigation of states. Um, but this is not really an intellectual investigation. Um, and we'll see that in the exercise that we're going to do later. It's, um, and it's, it's also clear that this is not merely an intellectual thinking about or, you know, pondering or looking things up on the internet to find out about something. Um, it's also evident from the conditions that are said to lead to the arising of this factor of awakening. There's a wonderful um, teaching in the commentaries that lists a whole bunch of conditions that, that are present for each of the seven factors of awakening. You know, you need, these are the things you need to bring that factor of awakening into existence. So I won't go over all of them, but because um, they're kind of long lists, but uh, I thought a few of them are kind of useful to contemplate for us. So in the case of um, Dhamma Vichaya, the second awakening factor, um, the, the, the prep for it includes um, having a clean surroundings, believe it or not. So if you have, um, you know, your, uh, your house is neat and your clothing is clean, <laughs> um, that is considered, uh, those are considered conditions that help this quality to arise. Uh, the general phrase given is to purify the basis. <laughs> um, I don't know. So, so what do you think? Do you think this is true? Or is our Dharma qualities more likely to arise when we're kind of in a neat and clean state? I think so, actually. I, um, I just went on, re I was on retreat, boy, the last time I was on retreat in person, who knows when that will happen again, but it was in January. And I, um, I arrived in my room and I thought it looked great because, you know, the rooms are cleaned by the previous yogi. And when people are so mindful and clear and compassionate and loving at the end of retreat, 
they did such a great job cleaning the room. And so I came in, I said, wow, this looks great. And I, I put my stuff in and started settling in. And, but I noticed that over the next, um, it was a long retreat, it was four weeks. And over the next several days or the unfolding days, as I settled in, I kept um, like wiping little marks off the wall, tiny little things, or cleaning up a little bit of dust that I found in the drawer, um, you know, some tiny little, I wasn't really obsessive, but it was like s sort of smaller things started to stick out. And I felt like, oh, I should really get that spot on the mirror. Um, and, it, you know, and, and I felt like this was supportive of my practice. It, it wasn't heavy and obsessive, like I said. Uh, and I also started, um, I had a sink in my room and I also started uh, wiping around the sink. Like as soon as I would brush my teeth or wash my hands, there might be some little spots of water around the sink. And I would just wipe those up with the washcloth before I went on. Um, so it just, it felt very supportive to, uh, to keep the surroundings in good shape. So I think there's something to this um, recorded, you know, over 2000 years ago in these texts. Um, and then there's also some preparation, not just of the physical space, but also the mental space in order for the factors of awakening to be supported. So in particular for the investigation, it said that the mind should be, I've kind of condensed it into receptive and clear. The mind should be in a state that's receptive and clear. The, um, the actual phrase in the commentaries is impart evenness to the five faculties which means that we should have balance in terms of our, our, our interest, our energy, our awareness, our focus, and our clarity. Those are my summaries of the, my translations of the five faculties. So there are various qualities that we'll want to kind of bring into our mental state of essentially being receptive and clear. And then finally, there's a cognitive stance. Um, in addition to this mental and physical prep, of uh, curiosity and respect and openness, which is something like, um, maybe like a scientist uh, preparing to observe the profundity of nature. Um, most scientists are actually quite um, awed and amazed by, um, you know, by what they're getting to observe in terms of how nature operates. And so there's kind of a sense of, wow, what is this? Let's see how this thing works. And that, um, that stance is considered important for, as you might guess, for investigation of phenomena. And there's a few others listed, but um, I think this is sufficient to give us the flavor of how we, you know, how we prepare ourselves to bring forth this, this sense of being able to investigate experience, which is so important uh, for the cultivation of the path. Um, are there any questions on that or comments? Yeah, you're probably generally familiar with this stance of mind, even if it hasn't um, coalesced into something that has the strength of a factor of awakening. It's, I think, a, a quality that many of us have experienced at, at certain times when we get curious about something and, and we're really, um, yeah, really open to investigating it. Okay, so I wanted to um, do this little exercise. I hope it's gonna work. I checked, I tested it out earlier. Um, if it's possible uh, where you are, 
looks like not all of you, that's going to be easy, but if it's possible where you are, could you grab a pen and paper? Um, because I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of writing. I'll wait for a moment. Okay, great. Thanks for, thanks for being game for that. So what I'm going to do is, since we're investigating, I'm going um, to give you an object to look at. Uh, and uh, just, it'll just be free writing uh, on your own. And, and you don't have to read what you wrote or anything. It's just for you. Um, but we're going to do two different modes of observation of this object. And, and the first one, I'll, I'll, t I'll let you know uh, what they are as we do them. So let me see if I can get this to work. This is so I can get the object in front of the camera. Sorry, you can't see very well. Um, see if this works. Yeah, how about that? So it's a little ceramic thing. Lid. Yeah. Um, so that's the object. And first, what you're going to do is just um, write down some, um, as if you were a neutral observer, observing this object. So you can write down things that you notice about it that somebody else could also see. That's the criterion. So things like color, shape, material, pattern, size, brightness, you know, just qualities of the object. So why don't you go ahead and do that and um, you know it'll be a few a few minutes.
So remembering to keep that uh, receptive, open, curious kind of stance. You might see more and more. Okay, so that's good. Um, why don't you stop with that particular um, mode of observation? And then um, for this second time, we're going to use the same object, but when you observe it, you will also include your internal experience, uh, including body and mind. So, for example, you could write down uh, sensations that are evoked by the object internally, like how it affects your breath or your eyes or your shoulders or your belly, um, if, if it evokes any sense of heat or cold. Um, and you can also include in the mind things like emotions or feelings that are evoked, pleasant or unpleasant or, um, I don't know, even joy or anger or boredom. Um, uh, take care not to run off into memories and stories, you know, constructing a long memory about how this is something from your grandmother's house or something. Uh, if that, this is all meant to be real-time observation. So if you do catch yourself thinking like that, you can just reorient to some physical feature of the object, like its color. So include um, internal experience as you observe it and write down any additional things that, that get included when you open to that dimension also.
All right, take this away. All right, so was that fun? <laughs> I know it's a lot um, for uh, maybe just one small object, but uh, it seems like a lot of time. But I, I should tell you a story actually, well, I wasn't planning to, but there's a famous story about a fellow who was um, from the uh, 19th century who was um, coming to study at a biology lab and he wanted to prove to the professor that he was gonna be you know, a good student, a good graduate student and that he should be accepted into his lab. And so he came and said, oh, you know, please can I study with you? And you know, the professor said, well, um, we'll see here. Um, observe this fish and he um um the prativa says she can't hear uh there is no sound there's no problem with the sound that i know of you may want to log out and log back in okay so um you guys are hearing me right other people can hear me okay good okay so um so the professor says um okay well here here's a fish um, and he puts this dead fish on the table for him. And he says, write down everything that you can about the fish. And so he writes and writes and writes for a while. And, the prof and you, know, you can't really leave. So the professor just left the room. And he, ca he came back hours later. And the guy was, you know, sweating away, looking at this fish, which probably didn't smell very good. And he said, well, you haven't quite got it yet. You know, he said, did you notice anything? And the, he said something about what he saw. And he said, oh, you have to keep looking. And he ended up having to look at that fish for three days. Oh. And finally the, uh, <laughs> finally the professor um, accepted him because he had finally seen uh, some important thing about the symmetry of how the scales were laid out stuff. So uh, I'm not gonna do that to you, um, but this was, uh, it was, I think it's a great exercise in observation. Um, and we, we do actually see more and more uh, as we observe. And for example, why did, you know, how is it that people can do breath meditation for decades? Uh, doesn't it get boring? Nope, there actually more and more unfolds from observing the breath. You know, we will see something now, but a few months, something else will come, a few years, something else will come, a few decades. So there's always more and more to see and experience. That's my pep talk for uh, for that. But I'm curious then. So that's all lead up to um, wondering if anybody would like to share, um, not necessarily what you wrote down, the details of your list, but I'm curious how those two different modes of observation were different for you and what came out in the second one compared to the first. Yeah, Risa. Uh, the first one was all like... Uh anatomical and the second one what does anatomical mean in uh, shapes and the the physical stuff uh-huh yeah like describing the physical stuff and the second one was like you know for instance the first thing that happened to me i was like this is i'm disinterested and then then i started being a little curious and then i wanted to pick it up so what would it feel like if I picked it up? Yeah, sorry, the only visual. Two things were completely different, completely different. 
okay. you know, the first thing to the second. Is really the second so if you had to encapsulate what was different about the second, what would you say? Um, this was like a real, okay, um, a different form of investigation. Oh, how do I say that? That's okay. If there aren't words immediately, that's okay. You can. It's just a, a totally different way of viewing it um, from, oh, kind of maybe owning it. Uh-oh. <laughs> kind of maybe wanting to have it. Not wanting to have it, but wanting to touch it. Whereas the other one, it was just like seeing it. This one was more like feeling it. Okay, yeah. That's a nice way to say it. Yeah, seeing it and feeling it. That, that makes sense. Other observations? Yeah, Lisa, you were leaning forward earlier. Yeah. So I just really briefly, the first one I would say made me feel more tense or tight. And the second one was calming. And specifically it was because I was imagining touching it. Okay. Um, Okay, thanks. Great. So there was a different quality to the to the attention. Both of you mentioned touching. It's interesting. Sorry, <laughs> this is this is all we've got. But <laughs> uh, other comments? That's great. Yeah, Lynn, and then Jane, and then Karen. Oh, could you get a little closer to your microphone? Yeah, is that better? Yeah. Yeah, I would say the first one I felt. I used my eyes and I would say I used my thinking brain, my my head more. Uh-huh. And the second one, although I was observing with my eyes, I think I was more in touch with uh, my body. Yeah. So the internal sensations also. Yeah. Great. So. Nice. Jane. Um, you know, just from the perspective of how the box was close to the camera and you were far behind, it looked huge <laughs> and it looked bigger than you were. And that I found that hilarious and it brought me so much joy. And so when you, when you observe only physical attributes, it's kind of dry mm -hmm. but when you you know put your feelings behind it you can reach so much richer depths yes yeah yeah it is kind of funny isn't it well i have to say i have the same experience for those of you um, who have your um, unmute button close to your camera and it looks kind of like this to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so the, the yeah the funny proportions on zoom karen did you have a comment also Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was interested when, when we got to the second one in that I thought, oh, I just don't have anything to say about this. You know, I've sort of said what I, you know, said what I thought. And it was, and then once I got started, there was just much, much more to say. Um, I was much more involved with it and I was sort of comparing it to mud and the landscape. And, you know, there, there was, it was just much more interesting. And also like everyone else really wanted to, to touch it where um, right. in the first one, I'm much more content to just look at it. Okay, interesting. Yeah, that feeling dimension comes in. 
either you know physical sensation or emotional feeling nice anyone else okay oh Naribia. um i just wanted to say i think i might be the only one who didn't want to touch it it's <laughs> uh, okay <laughs> that didn't come up for me but um I found my writing was quite different. So the first one was just a list, you know, just points about you know, attributes and very, you know, indifferent to the object. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think as a couple of people have said, when you said, we'll talk about, you know, from a different perspective, I was like, well, I don't really have any, anything else to say. But once I started writing, I found myself writing these long sentences and actually had a lot to say. And so when it came to the end, I was like, oh, I, I still actually more I want to say. Yeah, it starts to tap into different channels and even channels that express themselves differently, right? So for some people, the different expression was wanting to touch it. Um, your different expression was that you wrote in a different way. You had access to a different kind of language. They're all fine. Um, it's just often, yeah, it's often the case that some uh, a bunch of new stuff comes in. So this, this exercise was meant to demonstrate that... Um, as many of you even said in your comments, the first one is kind of dry and observational, and it's actually very similar to what's done in science, where we're um, neutral, we're trying not to bring in our biases and our own wants and not wants, and, you know, if we want to understand how nature works, we can't have it tangled up with how we want nature to work. We have to actually see what the data is. So there's some value in that. Um, but the second one, um, is more like this Dhammavichaya in the sense, in the sense that and I think you're going to use both modes, but in, in the sense that um, we need to include the, um, the wholeness of experience. Let's say it's a lot more like sitting with the breath, for instance, during that meditation where you were feeling the sensations and all the changing parts of it. Probably your mind was present also. So we can still have an observational mode, um, but include some of what we're bringing to the experience, which we're often not aware of or else we're deliberately not including because we're trying to be neutral observers if that's, you know, if that's the exercise we're doing. So this, is, this exercise helps us differentiate um, water qualities really of the object that would be visible to other people and what qualities of the experience are included when, uh, when it's us in particular that's observing that object. And this, um, this doesn't have to lead to a strong sense of self. Like That's why I discourage a little bit these long stories about how this relates to something in your past. Even right there in the present moment, though, there's all kinds of responsiveness that is, it is unique to you, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to do with a long personal story. And so the Dhammavichaya is a little bit more like the second one. Um, this kind of investigation uh, can actually go quite deep as we discover how we are participants in our experience. Um, and so I, I encourage you to explore a little bit um, in your meditation or in your life um, when it is that you're observing things that are in this somewhat more neutral way, scientific kind of way, and when um, you're including things from within you and when that's skillful and when it isn't. Sometimes it's actually quite skillful to just be very uh, dry and neutral, um, especially if you're 
combining with somebody else on something and you need to agree on what's going on, you start to see what you're projecting or what you're bringing in or what you're wanting. Um, and then, you know, deliberately maybe not include that if that's not skillful in that moment. Remember suitability, clear comprehension of purpose and suitability. Uh, you can check what's my purpose here. Is my purpose to get the other person to do something or get them to like me or something like that? And is that suitable in this moment? If we have this kind of investigation that it can be neutral or can be uh, including the body and the mind, we'll have a better chance of navigating through that in a wise, skillful way. So investigating mind and matter, uh, this was just a you know, observational piece of matter, but um, you got to include your mind and your body as part of it. Investigating that can actually go very deep. It can get very profound if we're observing change, if we're observing emptiness, you know, the not-self nature of things. Um, so I think it can be interesting to really observe, um, observe how we're observing. Maybe that's what I'll say about that exercise. Um, so then I also wanted to say a couple things about what the teachings say about Dhammavichaya, like where does it come in, this, um, this investigation of states. So we were told that we're to investigate these dhammas, and this points actually toward the fourth foundation of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta. Once again, that seems to be our theme for today. Um, the fourth foundation of mindfulness is the mindfulness of dhammas. Um, and it includes various categories of experience that we would look at. So I have the book here. Um, it includes the five hindrances. If you don't know these lists, it's okay. The five aggregates, the six sense bases, the seven enlightenment factors, and the four noble truths. So these are areas of, in, of experience that we bring our investigation to. And what do we do when we investigate? We observe the quality itself. Usually it's presence or absence. We observe how it comes into being. We observe how it ceases. We observe, in the case of hindrances, how they can be prevented. And in the case of factors of awakening, how they can be enhanced or developed. So, you know, various skillful qualities related to these mental components, these dhammas. Um, in fact, the factors of awakening, maybe I'll mention, remember we said dhamma-vichaya itself is the second factor of awakening. So that's one of the things that we would observe. So these are just the suggestions in the teachings of particular phenomena to observe. So, you know, for example, it doesn't include little ceramic boxes, but that's okay because, um, you know, while we're observing the ceramic box, we could be looking at whether our mind has mindfulness in it and whether it has investigation of states and whether it has any hindrances and so forth. So it's usually more, you know, it's more concerned with the mind. But, um, so I just wanted to let you know kind of what the realm of Dhamma observation is according to the classical teachings. Um, but these, this again can go very deep because if we're observing um, the arising and passing away of mental phenomena, that will lead us to also understandings of conditionality, what it is that brings them into being or allows them to cease. And also eventually we'll see that none of that has much to do with our personal story. So we're observing anatta also. And these kinds of observations of anicca, dukkha, anatta, the three characteristics, and also um, conditionality, those are four big ones that can go all the way to awakening if we just keep observing them. Um, the word is, uh, I'm seeing a 
chat from Pratibha. The word is Dhamma, D-H-A-M-M-A. Same word as the, the word of the Buddha um, and other things. It's um, That word has so many different meanings. So that's why I was pointing out that in this case, it's uh, probably means phenomena, like experiences, as opposed to say the, the word of the Buddha. Um, okay, so maybe I'll pause there. And this was our whirlwind tour of investigation as a mental quality. And I hope you've had enough of an experience of it to maybe start playing with it a bit in, in your own practice, but I'll stop and see if there are any questions about it. We're kind of winding down now. Yeah, Risa. Um, I'm dying to know how you described those two, the first and the second. How did, what instructions did you give us? Especially for the second one. How did you ask us to look at that? Oh, I said, um, include your own internal experience of body and mind as you uh, continue observing it. I was so confused when you first said that, but as soon as I started getting it, okay, include your... Right, and then I gave a long explanation of uh, examples of things that you might actually include. Thank well, you. Yeah. I mean, another wonderful quality, another wonderful teaching in the Satipatthana Sutta is for each of the exercises that are given in that sutta, if you haven't read it, by the way, you should. It's a great sutta. Um, are that we should observe something internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And most people just kind of breeze over that and say, yeah, it's, it's just a repetitive thing, some oral tradition that they just had to say it this way. Well, observe both internally and externally. That was what you did the second time around. Uh, that's one way it can be seen. There are other ways it can be seen. Um, so that starts to give a flavor of what's being pointed to. That's awesome because a lot of teachers say that um, external is what somebody else would see in this and talking about the Satipatthana Sutta. So this is, this is, yeah, you know, that's why I said I there are other ways. Sometimes it's, it's referring to other people. But I think, I think it can refer only to our own experience, but things that we're seeing outside or things that are reflected inside, because it, it, there does come a point where we have to understand that there isn't such a difference between those, actually. That starts to break down this idea that there's so huge difference between what we see outside and what we feel inside. That's, um, that, that you'll see through practice. Um, any other comments? I saw another hand before earlier, I thought. Maybe not. Roman. Tim, I did have kind of one, perhaps not a hang up, but um, a reoccurring thought since I saw the list of um, four aspects of of clear consciousness and I was kind of reflecting on the last one and being conscious of reality and I sort of get caught up in that one sometimes because you know if you ever do like a like an open eye meditation and you stare at like a candle or something for a long time it's not as like constant as it seems it maybe will like wave and or like do things that sort of betray our like normal thought of what reality is um like oh a wall should be like perfectly still and it kind of shows 
the inconsistencies of our senses. And so I find myself always wondering or maybe like tripping up over the idea of like, oh, I should be conscious of reality. And then I always just find myself following up like, well, what does that even mean? And um, because like, I don't, I don't know, do you, do you know what I'm getting towards and do you have any thoughts about that? Reality is not my favorite translation of that word. I think non, the word is actually amoha, which literally means non-delusion. Moha is delusion. So reality is like an attempt to put a positive word onto that instead of not saying non-delusion, which might be hard to understand. Um, I also would have some concern about the word reality because it sounds philosophical to me. It sounds like there, um, it might be implying that there is an ontological reality and then we can get in debates about whether or not that's true, which I really don't want to do. Um, maybe one thing that's being invited by that word, whether it's non-delusion or reality, is to um, see for yourself what it is that you can know you're right, we can only know things through our six senses. I would include the mind, not our, not just the five. And um, without getting entangled in complicated philosophy or, or in worrying that it's all turning into solipsism, which means that you know, the only thing exists that exists is my own, what's in my own head. Um, uh, I don't think the Buddha quite believed that. But we can start to um, get a clearer sense of what is it that I can really know about the world and it's humbling because given the distortion of our perception yeah we have to question just about everything that we see and so this can actually if it's done well this investigation if it's done poorly this investigation turns into a philosophical hang-up <laughs> luckily you didn't say you were hung up um, if it's done well this investigation can point toward really being very careful about what it is that we know for sure and um, really checking out how clear our experience can be and um, maybe eventually opening to, you know, if you're very rigorous about only going with what we can, what is, seems trustworthy, the mind will eventually open to the only thing that is trustworthy, which is Nibbana. So again, that has to be done well, but it's, I think it's inviting investigation into what we can really know. Yeah. Good question. Okay. So today um, we focused on these two qualities of clear comprehension and investigation. Uh, I, I think we didn't finish either one completely, but I hope they were well well enough introduced that you can start to observe them in your own or use them in your own practice. We are starting to see things more as they are. As we start using wise investigation and clear comprehension, we're starting to see um, what kind of filters we put on experience in terms of wanting or not wanting or manipulating in certain ways. And then we can make wise choices about whether those are skillful or not in that moment. Um, so if we want to go farther with this and really look more deeply into experience, maybe not only at the everyday, you know, ceramic box kind of level, but, um, you know, more deeply into the roots of the, of the mind, um, 
there are ways that we need to train our mind in order to, to see a little bit more steadily. So um, the mind has to be gathered together in a certain way to have enough clarity to see more deeply into experience. Um, so a mind that's clear and alert and sharp and energetic. And so next time we're going to talk about factors that are related to that, uh, specifically calm and concentration and the other seven factors of awakening the other of the seven factors of awakening. Um, and I do have some uh, recommendations for practice if they're of interest. I'll share the screen on those. Okay, so we can practice clear comprehension in daily life. So while you're eating, know that you're eating. While you're talking, know that you're talking. That's the challenge. That's a more challenging one. Um, Maybe if you read suttas, it will uh, help you to do that one. Um, and then in meditation, maybe um, doing like what we did in the meditation today. So first settling the mind for a little while, um, you know, some half, a third to a half of the meditation, just settling the mind. And then opening to the changing nature of the same object, of whatever it is that you were using, if you're using your breath or your body sensations. Um, notice, instead of calming the mind with that, notice deliberately the fact that there's a lot of arising and passing and changing sensations going on, even in that one object. And just allow the mind to rest um, with that and be okay with the, with the change. Okay, so um, anything else to feel complete? Any last questions or comments? Elisa, you're leaning forward. No, okay, you're just leaning yes. forward. So oh, Lisa. I have, I, I, I'm wondering, um, the first uh, factor of awakening is mindfulness and, and, and the second one, It's dropping out of my mind. Is but the Dhamma Vichaya is the investigation. Yes, yeah, yeah, investigation. So you chose clear comprehension to hook on with the um, investigation because of the mindfulness. So you're working through the seven factors of enlightenment. Like next um, time you should. I don't know that we're going to do them linearly. Um, no. So we've been on, we've looked at the mindfulness part. We've looked at the, um, uh, some of the energizing part, but um We'll look at a little bit more. We'll try to look at, broadly speaking, the other the other ones next time, along with and then focusing on the calm and concentration, which are the later factors, as you know, uh, in order that the mind becomes sharper in order to do really good investigation. We need both the energy, the energizing side and the calming side. I, I really appreciate. You brought clear comprehension in, and with mindfulness because a lot of people just separate it and don't even mention clear comprehension at all. Like just mindfulness and that's not what the Buddha intended. That's, this clear comprehension is beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it's kind of the wisdom side of mindfulness, I would say. And that's, that's what we're focusing on is some of these wisdom qualities. Although, you know, last time we talked about the nourishments and one of the factors of awakening is joy. So... You don't get to do 
you can't awaken without joy. So it's uh, maybe that's good news for us. All right. Well, thanks everyone. Um, really appreciate it, and we'll um, we'll meet again next week. Thank you, Kim. Take care. Good night. Thank you, Kim. Bye. Thank you, Kim. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.